0: Our Old Testament lesson, Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson and sermon text. Matthew chapter 26. Verses 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, They were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is within our text today an interesting translation. and One I think is actually quite helpful for us. Verse 10, when Jesus says that the woman has done a beautiful thing to me. It's certainly within the realm of translational possibilities. I I appreciate that. I like it. Because it gets the aesthetic sense of what she did. Taking that flask, dumping it on his head. It's not merely a morally good thing, but it's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. And so I want to ask you this morning, what do you see when in your mind's eye You behold that woman taking that oil and dumping it, or maybe someone say wasting it, all over the head and body of Jesus Christ. Do you see beauty? For indeed our Lord did. Some people want to say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as if it's only up to us what we think as if there's never some standard of beauty. Now, of course, there might be slight differences in terms of how people appreciate and interpret artwork out there. But God made beauty. He made it in the garden that things would be a delight to the eyes. That there would be gold across Eden. There would be gemstones and real beauty. Beauty. God established beauty. And so when we come to hear our Savior speak about that beautiful act directing us toward His beautiful work, I ask you, do you see beauty? Do you see it? When you think about and ponder the death and burial of your Savior Jesus, is it beautiful to you? For it is to your Savior beauty. And it is beautiful to your God. Do you value that beauty? For indeed, this is a counterintuitive beauty, is it not? To think about His suffering, to think about His death. Yet that is where we are in Matthew's Gospel. We are at the cusp of beauty. A God who is ready to act. A God who is ready to redeem. A God who is ready to breathe life into sinners who have been spiritually dead since the fall of Adam. A beautiful work is upon us, beloved. May we be excited to re-engage with the text that is probably quite familiar to us and see within it a very beautiful thing. Indeed, the most beautiful thing that we can imagine. A gracious God saving his wicked insurrectionist people who deserve death. Yet coming in love and in grace to redeem them. A greater Passover event. Let's begin by f- fixing our attention on verses 1-5. through five. In these verses, we see two plans, two plans in action. As we enter into these verses, I should note that verse 1 finishes with some language that we've seen before. At the close of each of the five discourses in Matthew's Gospel, we see these words, when Jesus had finished. Recall how the narrative for the Gospels are primarily narrative, are interrupted five times. The narrative is interrupted by the discourse sections of Matthew that focus on the kingdom of God. At the close of each, Matthew gives us the same Greek phrase when Jesus had finished. So we are officially back into the narrative section. Just like that fifth and final discourse brought the kingdom of God theme to a great culmination, now we are entering into the narrative section that brings the narrative to the great culmination. Both of those things, the kingdom and the narrative, revolving around the cross and resurrection then of Jesus Christ. Matthew here does not leave us in suspense. He's not leading us to wonder what will be the culmination of this narrative. No. Right away, he reminds us about, or he tells us that Jesus gave the prediction of his deliverance over to be crucified. Notice what the Jewish leaders are up to in verses 3 through 5. They're gathering together. Something that they were accustomed to doing. However, there's something unique happening here. They're not going downtown to the courthouse or downtown to City Hall to conduct the business where they would normally do it. Rather, they're holding a meeting after hours at the private residence of Caiaphas, the acting high priest of the time. If you know anything about how politics works, the formal session is oftentimes just a charade. The real business happens after hours. In the private room, where plots and schemes are cooked up, And that's what's happening here. We see here that a crystal clear plan emerges in this probably nighttime assembly. They're going to arrest Jesus and put Him to death, but it will not be during the Passover feast. They're going to avoid that at all costs because they are worried that the crowd of people would not support them in this arrest And murder. But contrast that with what Jesus says in verse 2. There are two plans at play here. Yes, the Son of Man will be delivered up to death, but he teaches it will happen during the feast, during the Passover. That will be the occasion when these corrupt earthly judges would judge the Son of Man, the Judge, who will enact the everlasting judgments? What an irony is going to occur. Yet in spite of their plans, it will happen during the Passover. This was because God's plan is ultimate. And He had planned this from the very foundation of the world. You see, not only had God from the foundation of the world planned the original Passover back in Egypt, not only had God planned that sacrificial lambs would be offered up on that night so long ago, not only had God planned that His enslaved, bondaged people would be delivered through those sacrifices and released from their slavery, but God had also planned that in the fullness of time, the Lamb of God would be sacrificed for the redemption of God's people. That sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. The fact that it would occur on the very night of the Passover celebration would saturate His death with redemptive meaning. God had a plan. And that plan would be worked out. We move on to verses 6-13, through 13, the middle section of our text. Here, we have an event that is recorded for us, not only in Matthew, but also in Mark and in John. During a meal, Jesus has oil dumped all over him an anointing with oil. The reaction of the disciples here and the indication from Matthew tells us that this oil was exceedingly valuable. The Gospel of Mark goes further, telling us that that oil would have cost a year's wages. What are you paid in the course of a year? What would all those paychecks added up amount to? Imagine literally dumping that out. All of it, every sense. This act angered the twelve. Presumably, they remembered how often Jesus had cared for the poor, and how he had just in the previous chapter, at the very end of it, talked about the importance of visiting the poor, caring for the poor, visiting those in prison, those who are ill and diseased. He had just taught about this, right? What you've done to the least of these, those you did to me. And so you can imagine the disciples here. Seeing this year's salary dumped all over the place, you can understand their anger. They saw an opportunity to fulfill Christ's teaching, to care for the poor, And this woman took all that oil, dumped it all over the place, and so they're upset by it. They're probably expecting that Jesus would commend them and affirm them in their so-called righteous anger. But no, that is not at all what Jesus says shockingly to them. Surely they were shocked by this. He rebuked them saying, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. This is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing that she had done for Him. Whether the woman was fully aware of her actions or not, we don't know. But Jesus had just told His disciples, remember back in verse 2, that he would be crucified in just two days. It's highly likely that it was not only the twelve who had heard Jesus make that prediction in verse 2, but there were often more than just the twelve with Jesus, but others there as well. It's certainly possible, perhaps likely, that the woman was there, heard what he said, and then knew full well what she was doing. But the result is the same nevertheless. Whether she fully understood her actions or not, bodies were prepared for burial through the use of oil. And that is what she was doing by pouring out that fragrant oil, preparing him for his own death and burial. While there are countless opportunities in the history of the fallen race to care for the poor, there is only one opportunity to die for sin. While it is always encouraging for us to hear about someone showing benevolence, how much more encouraging is it to think about that one act In the course of human history, that great act of benevolence that does not only care for the body, but that cares for our soul unto everlasting life, the death and burial of Jesus Christ. This is the only thing that becomes good news for the world As you think about relief of poverty, you think about good things to tell somebody, and that's fine. But it does not make worldwide good news. There are races across the globe. But the death and burial of Jesus Christ, that greater act of benevolence, well, that, that death for sinners, that Passover lamb being slain, here we find that one thing greater then caring for the poor. We find the Son of God dying for you and for me. Verses six through 13, this greater benevolence. Third and finally, we see in our text, verses 14 through 16, this closing. We see the plans come into alignments. You see, God here brings the Jewish leaders into line with what has always been His plan. They, remember, did not want to put Jesus to death on the Passover. But now, an opportunity has presented itself that they cannot possibly turn down. It's almost like they've forgotten what they just planned a few verses earlier. One from Jesus' inner circle approached them. Judas Iscariot. He becomes a defector. He's ready to hand over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We can infer from the context here that Judas was upset by Christ's message of his impending death and burial. This isn't what Judas had signed up for. He was holding out hope that Jesus was a king that would enter into some earthly glory. And now he sees that his hope's were dashed to bits. He thought Jesus would obtain riches. And so, being, you could say, a member of the president's cabinet, he would enter into riches as well. He would have a position of importance. He would have glory and share in what he expected Jesus to receive. But now he sees clearly, finally, that Jesus had no such aspirations, being resigned to death by crucifixion. And so you can understand again, do not agree with him, but understand why Judas then assumes that he, along with the other twelve, would probably face the same fate of Jesus. Judas had joined himself with the loser. He was in trouble and now in a last-ditch effort to save his own skin and to get, make the most of the situation, he defects from Jesus to the Jewish leaders, get a little bit of money while he can, save his hide, he betrays Jesus and sets the table for him to die during the Passover events. At the close of our text, the two plans align. God's plan always wins out let's think about a little bit what these things mean for us today. I want to begin by just fixing our attention on God's plan. And that God's plan is good. Recently, my uh, kids and I have been uh, talking about uh, Joseph in our home. And how Joseph is that type of Jesus Christ. Recall, his sufferings, his descent into the pit... He's innocent of of all wrongdoing. He's betrayed by those closest to him. He's given over to death itself. All these things happened to Joseph. All these years of suffering, right? All these wicked plans that the brothers had for him. But recall, while they had evil plans, God had... A good plan at play, did he not? In fact, at the very end of Genesis 50, we have certain words that kind of capture so much of the Genesis message for us. As for you, Joseph speaking to his brothers here, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The sufferings of Joseph pointed us to the sufferings of Jesus. The betrayal of Joseph pointing us to the betrayal of Jesus. His ascent to the throne in Egypt pointing us to the ascent to the throne of Jesus. Beloved, what Judas and the Jewish leaders meant for evil against Jesus. God meant for good. Do you appreciate that? Do you see God's plan in high definition, finally in the Gospels, playing itself out? That through sin, through wickedness, through all sorts of earthly misfortune, God's plan is at work bringing about goodness for His kingdom people. Recall those memorable words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.28 For those who love God, all things work together together for good. All things. Not just some things. Not just the big things. Not just the good things. In Romans 8, Paul has a great concern with suffering. All the sufferings and afflictions in this present age. All the things that could cause you to think that you could be somehow separated from the love of God in Christ. Tribulation won't do it. Distress won't do it. Persecution won't do it. Nakedness, danger, sword, no. Because God is working all things for good for those who love Christ. Understand here, beloved, that God's plan is good. What is the most difficult circumstance in your life right now? What is it? What do you see happening? At times, because of the sin of others, often because of the sin of ourselves, or perhaps not because of any particular sin, but something is falling apart. And we see that there's often an intention for evil and malice. Beloved, see it within the grand scheme of things. God is intending it for good if you love Jesus Christ. In verse 2, Jesus said, The Son of Man will be delivered up. One of the uh, church fathers, not always a great source for everything, but he's often insightful into the biblical text, Origen. He points out here that Jesus does not specify who would deliver him up. The passive voice is being used. The Son of Man will be delivered up. Elsewhere he says, "Ah, you know, the Jewish leaders might do it. Somebody else might do it. But here, he seems to have in view not merely the plan and delivering over of the Jewish leaders, but God the Father as well, delivering him up. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Beloved, God has good plans at play. Even when you see evil around you, God is at work. God is at work. His plan, it is good. Second, there is good news of death. Good news of death. This sounds so crazy to say in many ways, but nevertheless, this is the good news that Jesus speaks about being proclaimed around the world, which will be then attached to what that woman did, pouring oil all over Jesus. Indeed, she's recorded in three of the four Gospels. So significant was her action. This action of Jesus He's been preparing us for. As you read earlier in our service, those three predictions from Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20. Here again, Jesus being delivered over to His death. So weird to say. Good news about death. This is only the kind of thing that the Spirit can open our eyes to behold. To say that death It's beautiful. That death, it's good news. That death, it is to be celebrated. That death, let's tell about it around the world. That death, let's rejoice. How often have you said that about any person's death in this world? I'm sure very rarely, if ever at all. Only the Spirit can open our eyes to see beauty, to see good news, when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because, blood is there that we see our sin and our misery on display. It is good news because Jesus was carrying it. It's beautiful because Jesus was bearing it. It is good news because that becomes a solution to a problem that you and I cannot address ourselves. It is good news. His death. It is beautiful. As you come to the cross and being prepared to see beauty and good news, you must also see the fact that that Son who is there is not merely Son of Man, but also Son of God. For indeed, how could the death of a sinner and mere man ever atone for your sins and my sins? It is beautiful. It is good news. Because Jesus was not only true man and righteous man, but also true God. Do you see the good news? Do you see the beauty? Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians about this counterintuitive reality when he said the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What do you see when you consider the death and burial of your Savior? Do you see an act of benevolence greater than caring for the poor, Do you see one who carried your sins and the sins of others? Do you see one who provides you with the only solution to your enmity with God? Do you see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Beloved, behold the greater Passover. Behold the good news of Jesus Behold the redemptive event that has freed you from bondage. Behold your Savior in all His love for you, being betrayed for you, given over to the greatest of wickedness that you who were once dead might find life. What? Good news. The good news of death. Third and finally, I'm going to invite you to reflect upon your valuation of Jesus. We do a lot of valuation in our time. We just got our property tax bill in case now we're talking about that recent new valuation of properties in the city. Not my favorite. We think about how much things are worth. Go to the grocery store. You're thinking about how much things are worth. You're scrolling through Amazon. You're thinking about how much things are worth. Will I pay for that or not? What's your valuation of Jesus? Matthew presents not just the woman and Judas. He presents them side by side for a reason that you would see the contrast between the way that they valued Jesus. On one hand, you have Judas, who, as we discover, had always viewed Jesus as a means to his own earthly end. What can I get out of him? How can I line my pockets? How can I get some earthly glory? How can I have some earthly success? And once he sees that Jesus was not going to give him his best life now, what does Judas do? Betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Which as we see in the Old Testament, is the price for a slave. That's what Jesus was worth to Judas. He can be my slave. He can serve me. The metaphor that I think is at work. A means to Judas's glory and Judas' end. He did not have any true devotion to Jesus. To serve Him, he wanted Jesus to serve Judas and serve his earthly needs. The woman, on the other hand, had no such valuation of Jesus. She was ready This is being symbolized by that act of pouring out all of that oil, a whole year's wages worth. She is demonstrating symbolically there that she is giving her entire life in devotion to Jesus. She's giving her whole self. So highly, so greatly did she value Him. She can think of nothing in the world more precious to Him More precious to her than he was. Say that correctly. Again, I mentioned this earlier, just a highlight. I think a lot of commentators waste a lot of ink asking the question did the woman know what she was doing? But I think that's the suggestion here. She knew. The disciples heard Jesus make that prediction. The disciples often included more than just the 12. It mentions disciples in verses 1 and 2, and then the 12 a little bit later. Clearly Matthew's differentiating between the two here in this context. I think she heard. I think she knew. And so the question then becomes for you this. Are you hearing not just hearing with your ears, but are you hearing the Word of God? Beholding the value of Jesus. Beholding the beauty of His death. Hearing not merely with your ears, but with your heart. And thus valuing Him. We can oftentimes get wrapped up in what we're doing for Jesus especially those of us who might have a formal office in the church, but not just that. We want to serve Jesus. We want to do things for Him. But here's the question of, do you value Him? He is the treasure. His death is that He could give Himself to you. Do you value Jesus? Are you ready to pour out your life for Him? To say, nothing in the world matters as much as You, Lord, for You are my only Passover Lamb. You are the One who has brought me redemption. You are the One who has led me out of bondage. You are the One who is leading me onward to the heavenly land of Canaan. You are the One who is feeding me with Your heavenly body and blood. You are the One who is giving me nourishment day after day. You are the One who is protecting me from all my spiritual enemies. You are the only One in whom I find life. Do you value Him? Beloved, this day, we have the beginnings of the Passion or suffering narrative of our Savior. Of course, He suffered throughout His life, but this culminated here as it proceeds toward the cross, as He began to receive the wrath of God for the sins of His people. Beloved, see the love of God for you, the grace of God for you. brings you redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. I pray today that you would see the beauty that God has placed counterintuitively at the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.